Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to JRoot Radio, 97.5 FM. It's our weekly share in the Parsha. As always, I'm thrilled to be here with you, and God willing, we're going to have some great learning tonight. Uh, this week's Parsha is Parsha's Vayikra. We begin the third book of the Chumash, the book of Leviticus, Sefer Vayikra. Excited to be here. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me after this year, very simple. Just write me an email. My email address is director at jeln.org. Director at jeln.org. The JELN stands for Jewish Executive Learning Network. Um, if you request that, I'd be happy to send you a printed version of some of the Tyra we'll cover tonight in email format in time for Shabbos. Uh, just send me an email with the request, and I'll make sure that you're ready to go by the Shabbos table. I'm often asked how you can listen to and access previous week's Shi'urim. Pretty simple. If you go to the JRoot radio site, uh, they have a page there with uh, the archive of the Wednesday night classes. Also, if you go to TorahAnytime.com, look up my name, Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N, on the speakers page. I have almost 300 classes and videos posted there. A lot of different topics. You should be in good shape, and that should hopefully keep you occupied with Divrei Tyra for a while. So at any rate, let's get started with Parshas Vayikra. So Parshas Vayikra begins the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it's well known that once school children are able to learn Torah from the Chumash, the minig, the custom, is for their studies to begin with Parshas Vayikra. That's what certainly the boys definitely, I know, begin with. That's where they begin the book of Vayikra. And Parshas Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, this is where they begin. Now, you might have imagined that Parshas Bereshis would be the most appropriate place for children to begin their studies of Chumash, because after all, it begins at the, it starts and appears at the very beginning of a Sefer Tyra. But nevertheless, the minig, the custom, is that our kids start off with Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, and Bereshis is what the kids learn afterwards. The question we're going to ask now is why? Why is it that Vayikra comes first? So the answer to this question, one of the answers is actually found in a medrash. The medrash says, Vayikra Rabba, Parsha Zion under Oiz Gimel. It says over there that because the little children are tahor, which means pure, and so are the karbonais, the offerings in the temple, and that's a subject of the study of this week's Parsha, we want those who are pure, meaning the kids, to come and involve with them, themselves, with things that are pure. So the kids are pure, the karbonis are pure, so the, those who are pure should be involved with that which is pure, tahor with tahor, and that's why the minig is to begin over there by learning uh, Parsha's Vayikra. That's what the Medrash says, why the custom is for kids to begin this way. Now those of us who have been blessed and fortunate enough to have children, and Amir Tzashem, those who haven't yet, Amir Tzashem soon will be, uh, the, anybody with kids has to work stridently. You have to put a lot of kayak to maintain your kid's purity. So I want to speak about one specific prat in Indian in this effort to try to keep your kids tahar. The Mishnah Brura, if you look over there in the Sharetzian, section 560, he quotes over there the Shlaha Kaddish, and the Shlaha warns that parents should make sure if you want your kids to remain pure, make sure the Shalah writes and the Mishabura cites this. Do not expose your kids to immoral music. Because if you do so, it'll give your kids a teva ra, a bad nature. And the Shalah Kaddish also says that this kind of uh, immoral music, 
from in, inappropriate, unholy sources, has a tendency to arouse the Yetzirah and the baser instincts in a person. And uh, therefore, the Shlarites, if you're interested in guarding the Neshamas of your family members, you're going to warn your household concerning this matter. I recently said this over to someone. You have to make sure, you know, the Gaiyashim music and the this and that. You know, uh, you might enjoy the beats and the music and the, the rhythm, but, uh, you know, maybe when you're working out this and that, but you have to understand, it's bringing out your Yetzirah. It's, it's, it's a kind of music, the Shlarites about it, that it causes a person to feel an emphasis on their physical side. And so the person said, Rabbi Bregman, are you kidding? I'm, not only am I aware, I didn't know about the Shlarites, but I'm aware about that idea. And Fakir, the opposite. That's why I listen to it. I like it, and especially when I work out. So it's a double you do. It's a well-known thing that this kind of music arouses the tevara, the bad nature in a person, and their yetzahara, and their baser instincts. And Mishnah writes that uh, if you care about the, the souls in your home that you're responsible for, let them know about this and try to keep it away from them. Now, while I'm on the topic of keeping children, your Jewish children, pure, I'd like to share with you this vart as well. There's a Pasuk in Tehillim. It's Kapitel 147, Pasuk Yud Gimel, 147, verse 13. It says over there, For he, the he is Hashem, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children in your midst. For he, meaning Hashem, has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children in your midst. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky Zatzal asked, when will you find that your children are blessed? Which is the second half of the Pasuk. He has blessed your children in your midst. When are you going to find that the mandate of the second half is fulfilled? And he answers, well, Hashem will fulfill the second half of the Pasuk when you fulfill the first half of the Pasuk. The first half said, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. In other words, at Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, when the gates of your home are locked in a way, that will allow you to keep out as much as you can the schmutz and the impurity of the gas, the street, and the and, and the noxious influences away from your kids. When you will strengthen the bars of your gates and, and do that, that's when you will see bracha in your children. Obviously, we live in a world today in which the uh, the 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 power of the Goyishkeit and the media and the secular influences, it's extremely powerful. And even if you have internet filters and you try to guard your aznayim, your ears, and guard your enayim, guard your eyes, it's still a little bit difficult to, to keep out all of the stuff, no matter how many bars you try to put up and around. Afalpike, nonetheless, it's our avoid that to try to make sure we do it. And as Rabbi Yankov Zatzal was saying, based on this Vartan Tehillim, the Kedusha of our homes and the purity of our children and their bracha will probably depend upon it. Okay, let's keep going with the Parsha. So, Parsha's Vayikra. Now, it's fairly well known, it's pretty well known that the letter Aleph, the letter Aleph is small, written small in the Torah, at the end of the word Vayikra. Vayikra is the name of the Parsha. It's also the name of this new book of the Torah. And if you look in any Chumash, and certainly in a Sefer Torah, you'll see that the letter Aleph at the end of the word Vayikra, it's written small. It's as though Hashem had Moshe write the word Vayikra, everything but the last letter in one certain font, and then at the end he wrote it in a smaller font. What is this about? So the Balaturim and others point out that the word Vayikar, which is the same word as Vayikra, but without the Aleph at the end, that is the word that Hashem used 
and uses in the Torah when he's calling to speak to Bilam. Bilam, in the book of Midbar in chapter 23, we're going to see from him, he's the non, the famous non-Jewish prophet. The word Vayikar is the one that Moshe, excuse me, Hashem uses to speak to him. And uh, Vayikar, and that's like Vayikra. So Moshe, Balaturim and others explain in his extreme humility, he wanted to use the same word to describe himself. Moshe didn't want the Aleph added at the end of Vayikra because the word Vayikra has more of a connotation of Hashem's affection for him and Moshe's high spiritual standing. Not only that, the word Vayikra connotes, it has a connotation, that Moshe always stood in a state of spiritual preparedness to speak to Hashem. While by contrast, Vayikar, meaning Vayikra without the Aleph, the word used for Bilam, it connotes randomness. The word Vayikar is like the Lushan Keri, means random, chant, something like that. So what happens? So Moshe Rabbeinu, in his humility, he says, eh, Hashem, you don't need to write Vayikra. It's a Lushan of, of endearment, of chiba, of closeness, and that I'm always in a state of preparedness to speak to. I don't need such a thing. It's fine, the word used to speak to Bilam, who's a, not even a, who's kind of a wicked person. It's good enough for me. So Hashem said, I don't want that. I want you to have a Vayikra, a nice normal Aleph. And Moshe says, I'll have no Aleph. That's fine. So what happened? They decided to machab shara. They decided to make a compromise. And so what was the compromise? That the letter Aleph would appear, but that it would be small. So Moshe followed Hashem's instructions to put the Aleph, but he wrote the Aleph small. Okay. So what happens in the end? So what happens in the end is since Moshe wrote the letter Aleph small at the end of Ayikra, it comes out that Moshe didn't end up using all of the ink, all of the ink that Hashem had allocated towards writing the Sefer Tyrant Har Sinai. This meant that there was a touch of ink left over when he finished. At Har Sinai, Hashem allocated a certain amount of Tyra, a certain amount of ink to Moshe Rabbeinu to write the Tyra. But he, he didn't use it all up. There was a drop left over because he wrote the olive small. So in fact, the Medrash Tan Choma and Parshas Kisisa under Ois Lamed Zion says that Hashem took the leftover ink and smeared it on Moshe Rabbeinu's face. And this caused Moshe's face to shine when he descended the mountain to the point where he had to wear a mask when he spoke to the people. And that's discussed at the end of the book of Shemos chapter 34. Verses 29 to 35. So where did this extra ink come from? The answer is because he chose to write the letter Aleph small in the word Vayikra. Very, very Gishmakavart. Now I'd like to point out one other quick idea. The Chanukah Satoira, the Rebbe of Heschel, and the Rechaim HaKadosh give us a somewhat different explanation of where the extra ink came from that ends up being smeared on Moshe Rabbeinu's face. It is their contention that it's not from the small Aleph in our Parsha. These Gedolim explain that it comes from Parsha's Bahaloischa. In the book of Amidbar, chapter 12, verse 3, there's a postic that says over there that Moshe was exceedingly humble more than any person on the face of the earth. Now in that postic, the word humble is unav. Moshe writes over there the word unav, humble, in an unusual, minimized way. Moshe Rabbeinu actually omits a letter there. He omitted a letter because it was difficult for him to write such a praise about himself, that he was the, the more humble than any person on the face of the earth, exceedingly humble. So Hashem said to him, I want you to write. Moshe was exceedingly humble. So he was supposed to write. He was, he was unav more than any other person. 
but uh, he didn't feel totally comfortable writing it. So he wrote Anav, omitting a letter. So it's you could read it as Anav, which means humble, but uh, it's written with a letter missing. And according to and the Arachayim, that is what created the extra ink. Now, what I'd like to do now is connect what we set up to now about Moshe Rabbeinu to a famous teaching in the Gemara in Erovin. And I, and I want to make this connection myself, but I think it, it fits very well. The Gemara says in Erovin, that whoever lowers himself, then Hashem raises him up. And the Gemara is there, says, whoever in his arrogance tries to elevate himself, Hashem will humble and lower that person. And that Gemara says that whoever is going to search for prominence, Prominence is going to flee from that person. But whoever flees from prominence, prominence searches after him. That's a Gemara in Erevin. You also find a similar statement about chasing honor and pursuing honor to some degree in Pirkei Avos as well. If you look at the Mishnah Pirkei Avos, chapter 1, Mishnah 13, says that he who seeks renown will end up losing his reputation. So why am I bringing this Gemara? Erevin, these Gemaras, Pirkei Avos, what's the connection to our Parsha? You see from our Parsha that Moshe attempted to flee from honor, either by putting the olive small and wanting to be like Bilam, or maybe because uh, according to the other Pshat that he removed the letter from the word humble, Anav. But what happened? He tried to flee from honor, and by minimizing the true extent of his humility or make himself sound like Bilam. But the honor ends up pursuing him in the end because his shining face proclaimed to everyone his enormous spiritual standing. Moshe tried to minimize his greatness and show humility. And in both approaches, according to the different approaches we brought out, this ended up showing his greatness. It's an axiom of Torah. It's a classic piece of Torah Shkafa that a Jew needs to know that you don't need to seek recognition and lower yourself by seeking kavod, honor, recognition. If a person will merely carry out the will of Hashem, recognition will ultimately be his. And the Gemara says, for example, in Mayad Katan, that any person who is engaged deeply in the study of Torah within the base Medrash, he can be assured that his learning will ultimately proclaim him abroad to the entire world. You just have to do the Ratzon Hashem, you just have to do what the Rabbi Shalaylam wants of you, and everything else is going to come out ganz good. Okay. Now, another pshat. Why is the letter small in the word Vayikra, the letter at the end of the word? So the Kliyakar and the Sefer called Mayana Shal they give a different reason. They say that the Aleph has to do with teaching. The letter Aleph has to do with teaching. Because the word Aleph... The word Aleph, not just the letter, but when the word, but if you actually write it as a word, Aleph means to learn or to teach. For example, you find the word used in this context in the book of Eiv. In the book of Job, Eiv, chapter 33, verse 33, it says over there, be silent and I will teach you wisdom. It says, be silent and I will teach you is va'alefcha, 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 it's the word Aleph. I will teach you wisdom. So you see that it's a word about learning and teaching and the like. So what's Pshat? Kliyakar, Mayana, Shaltaira, what are they saying? They're saying that if you want to be able to learn Taira, you want to be able to teach, uh, I want to teach you wisdom, like the Pesach says in Eoiv, you have to be prepared to humble yourself. 
And that's why the letter Aleph is small. Aleph has to do with teaching and learning and teaching and wisdom. The lesson is, if you want to be able to learn Taira, you have to be prepared to humble yourself. It's no coincidence that the humblest person of all, Moshe Rabbeinu, was also the greatest Hamachachim of all, the greatest Torah scholar, and he was the one who sought to minimize his kavod, sought to minimize his recognition. Okay, now I cited a few moments ago a Rashi. Let's keep going. Rashi says that the calling described from Hashem to Moshe, described by the word Vayikra, it has a connotation of a calling filled with the endearment and affection of Hashem. And that's part of the connotation. I said that before. Now next, keep going in that Rashi. Next Rashi says that you might have thought that there was a calling that's what it says, that there was a calling from Hashem to Moshe at the breaks as well. What's the breaks? A breaks is a reference to the blank spaces in the Torah that usually accompany the end of a line or a pasuk or a, a paragraph in the Sefer Torah. So Rashi says, you might have thought that there was also a calling from Hashem to Moshe at the breaks, the blank spaces. So Rashi says, that's not the case. The calling, the Vayikra, Hashem calling to Moshe, it's only for the content of the Torah itself and not the breaks between the chapters. So what's the idea over here? That's an interesting Rashi, but what's the, what's the takeaway for ourselves? So if you look in the Darish Moshe, Rav Moshe Feinstein Zatzal says, we can derive a great lesson from this. There are times in life when a person, especially a man, has to stop his limud atayra, his Torah study, for a devar mitzvah, to attend to some mitzvah item. Maybe you're a guy and your wife needs help in cleaning the home for Pesach or for Shabbos even. Maybe you need to go to the airport and you need to pick up your parents who are flying in to see you. So halacha, Jewish law, oftentimes requires that we stop our learning and attend to the other mitzvah. Maybe it's helping your spouse, picking up your parents. So other times, other things you have to do. You sometimes have to stop your learning and go do that mitzvah because that's what you're supposed to do. So Rav Moshe Feintin Tatzal says that while Hashem will surely reward you for performing that mitzvah, be aware, and he says this is the point of that Rashi, that there is no calling at that time during the breaks. Remember, that's what Rashi said. There's no calling from Hashem during the breaks. If you hadn't have had to stop your learning to be involved in this mitzvah, rest assured, Rav Moshe says, that the love and the feeling of closeness to Hashem that He would shower upon you, and you would have felt would have been even more intense if you didn't have to stop your learning. So that's what he says. That's what he says is the drush, the homiletic understanding of that Rashi. That you might have thought that Hashem calls to you during the breaks, and he says, no, Hashem's not calling during the breaks, just under the actual basic body of Torah. So if you have to stop, and you have to take a break from your learning, okay, sometimes you have to, sometimes it's the right thing to do, but uh, you won't feel the love of a Kaddish Baruch in the exact same way. Okay, now, it says, He, Hashem, called to Moshe. Let's speak about the name of Moshe. Sefer Vayikra begins with the words, He called to Moshe. Now, based on that, there's a great deal of Torah discussing the name, the actual name of Moshe Rabbeinu. In fact, there's a Medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, under, under chapter 1, section 1, under Ois Gimel, letter 3 over there, 
the Medrash over there lists a whopping 10 names of Moshe Rabbeinu. There's different Midrashim listing names of Moshe Rabbeinu. One list in one place, I think. Seven names of Moshe Rabbeinu. This Medrash of Aikarabba lists 10 names of Moshe. Now, if you ask the average person, do you know any other name of Moshe Rabbeinu? They say, I don't know. Moses, Moshe. <laughs> you know, what other names did he have? So you look over there in the Medrash and you'll see, for example, he was called Yered. Because what's Yered? He was the one who brought down the Torah. The word Yered is like the word Yerida, to bring down. Moshe brought down the Torah from Har Sinai. So he's known by the name Yered, bring down. Okay. Another example of a name you find in the Medrash is Avigdar. Avigdar is a Jewish name. And many people don't know, or they should know, that's actually one of the names of Moses. That was one of the names. He was known by the name Avigdar. Why? Because Avigdar is from the word Av and Geder. Av is a father. And Geder is like a fence, like Geder, Gedarim, like a protective fence. Moshe was called a Vigder because he was the father of those who would build in the future a protective fence around the Torah. But this Medrash over here, Vayikarabba, proclaims that of all the names of Moshe, Hashem would refer to him when Hashem would call to Moshe, like it says in the beginning of our Parsha, Hashem would refer to him by the one given to him. The one name given to him, and that was by Basia, Paro's daughter. When she pulled him out of the water, that is the way that he was referred to. Because that's what the Pesach says. Hashem, meaning, excuse me, he called to Moshe, that he is Hashem. So he called to Moshe, and not in the name of Avigdor, and not in the name of Yerid, and all the other names that the Medrash brings. He called using the Medrash as Dafka, the name of Moshe. Question is this. The Torah tells us, it's well known in Torah idea, uh, ideas, Torah thinking, that the name of a person or a thing encapsulates its essence. So how does this apply to Moshe Rabbeinu? I mean, he didn't even do anything over here. Something was done for him. How does the fact that he was drawn from the water pertain to his essence? And a Moshe stems from the fact that Basya actually reached out and drew Moshe out of the water. That's where his name comes from. And if the name represents an essence of someone or something, I would have imagined that, uh, that, that somehow that encapsulates his essence. But it's very hard to understand how that encapsulates his essence. In all the other names, Moshe was doing something active, a role he would play. Here, he was totally passive and he was a baby. So how does that encapsulate his name and his essence? Because here, he didn't even do anything. Something was done for him. So Rav Chaim Shmulevitz Zatzal in the Sichas Musr speaks out this question a little bit. And he explains that Moshe Rabbeinu's entire essence, his whole life, was characterized by Mesiras Nefesh. Mesiras Nefesh means sacrificing of himself, risking of himself for someone else. And where did he get that from, that Mesiras Nefesh? The answer is from Basia's self-sacrifice on his behalf. She sacrificed on his behalf. She violated her father's edict to save this child's life. She could have, she could have gotten in enormous trouble for this. So Rav Chaim Levit says it's as though Basia's sacrifice entered the body and soul and essence of Moshe Rabbeinu. And that, he says, is how the passive event that happened to Moshe ultimately came to define his essence. Okay, a little bit more on the first Pasuk in the Parsha. So Rashi says, we're talking over here about how Hashem called to Moshe, Vayikra to Moshe. 
Rashi says that the voice that Hashem used to call to Moshe was very loud. It was similar, in fact, to the one we find in Tehillim. In the book of Psalms, chapter 29, verses 4 and 5, it's mentioned also in the Friday night davening. And I'll just recite in English. It says, the voice of Hashem is powerful. The voice of Hashem is majestic. The voice of Hashem breaks cedars. Cedars, great. So, so Hashem didn't speak to Moshe uh, very soft. He spoke to him very loud. But nonetheless, despite the fact that the voice of Hashem was loud and powerful, the Torah relates that only Moshe was able to hear it. Only Moshe was able to hear the voice of Hashem. But it wasn't because it was a whisper. It was very, very loud, big enough to be powerful and majestic and, and break trees with the sound. But only Moshe heard it. What's that about? So the Balei Musser say that we see from here a good lesson for daily life. Hashem calls out to each and every one of us in a loud voice. Each of us has the potential to hear it. Hashem does not speak to His children, Klal Yisrael, in hushed tones and a whisper. No. Hashem speaks to each and every one of us daily and He screams His message. What's the message? Get closer to me. Keep my Torah. Do tshuva. I'm with you. Don't give up. Keep going, push, die. Those are his messages. And I'm screaming them. The problem is many of us have our own spiritual ears, so to speak, blocked. Or we're just not attuned to hearing his voice. But Hashem is screaming his message loud and clear for those interested in closely giving a hearing and a listen. Now, um, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead because I want to make sure we cover everything I wanted to get to tonight. I want to speak about for a moment keeping secrets, okay? The Pesach says that he called to Moshe and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, saying is Lamor. Le- saying, Lamor. Hashem uh, called, okay, he called to Moshe, Hashem speaks to him from the tent of meeting, Lamor, saying, etc. Now the Pesach is already related to us that Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him. He called to Moshe. And then it says, and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So, okay, he called to him, Hashem spoke to him. It says, what do we need that it has to say Lamar saying again? Why does the Pasuk have to add that at the end? Seems kind of superfluous. We know already Hashem is saying something to him. He called to Moshe and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So he could just say what it is already. It's to say, saying Lamar again. That word seems superfluous. We already know something's going to be said. So here's where the secrets component comes out. So for this reason, the Gemara in Yuma, the Avdalad Amadalev, derives an important lesson from here. If someone is told something by his friend, the Gemara says you're not supposed to repeat it unless you're specifically told that you may repeat it. If your friend tells you something, you're not supposed to repeat it unless the person specifically tells you you can. In fact, Rashi here understands the word Lamar as being a contraction of the words Loi Emor, which means do not repeat. Lamar is Loi Emor, do not repeat. In other words, even after Hashem revealed so much to Moshe, it's the appearance of the word Lamar here and throughout the Torah, which gave Moshe the authority to relate it to us. And truth be told, it's as though the entire Torah would have remained locked inside of Moshe's mind and heart, but for the fact that the Torah constantly repeats, Hashem spoke to Moshe, Lamar. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe, Lamar. And it's that saying which uh, triggers it that, we're, that Moshe was allowed to reveal to us that which he heard.
Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, many people operate through daily life with the opposite assumption of this Gemara. And that is, their assumption is that it's fine, totally okay, glad kosher, to share with other people anything you heard from somebody unless you were specifically told not to repeat it. Isn't that what most people think? Well, I could repeat over anything I was told by anybody else. Unless they specifically not to, in which case I won't. But otherwise, I'm allowed to repeat and say over everything I've heard. So in truth, what's the halacha? So if you look in the Chavetz Chaim and the halacha is the Lashon Hara, he says over there that the prohibition described in this Gemara and Yuma applies in circumstances similar to that of the verse, to that of our Pasuk, wherein Hashem privately conveyed the information only to Moshe, and only in the Mishkan. So similarly, and this is what the Chavetz Chaim is saying, if somebody would make an effort to tell you a secret or information in a private manner, or if it would be the type of thing that most people would not want revealed, in that case, then it may not be repeated without explicit permission. So Hashem gave Moshe this information privately, and it was conveyed in a private way. Or so, Okay, so because of that, we know that's the circumstance that this halach is applying to. But a very, very mundane statement, uh, such as, for example, Mark told me that he drove to work last week, that may be repeated without permission. So if somebody's telling you a secret or information in a purposeful, private way, it's a kind of thing that nobody will want revealed. I wouldn't want anybody to know that about me, most people. Then you can't repeat it without permission. And over here, we know that Hashem conveyed Moshe the information privately. So therefore, you need to lay more to allow it to be unlocked and shared. But obviously, and this is the idea, if somebody would say, Mark told me he drove to work last week, assuming Mark is uh, employed and a regular person in case, there's nothing especially secretive about uh, the fact that he has a car and drives to work every day. Something like that could be repeated without permission. Okay, we're about halfway through our show. You're listening to 97.5 FM. J Root Radio. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. Let's keep going with Parshat Vayikra, chapter 1, verse 2. The Pesach says that when a person, an Adam, from among you will bring an offering to Hashem. When an Adam, a person from among you brings an offering. The question is, why is the word Adam used here to describe the person who's bringing the carbon? Adam means person. And it's also the same as the word that describes the name of the first person in the Torah, Adam Arishain. It's also the same word as his name, Adam, like as in Adam Arishon, Adam could mean a person. Okay. Now we might have imagined that instead of using the word Adam over here, when a person, an Adam from amongst you will bring a carbon for Hashem, an offering, the Torah could have just as easily used the word an Ish. If an ish, a man from amongst you brings a carbon, it could have said an ish brings a carbon. Why does it have to say an adam? So Rashi answers why the choice of the word adam was necessary. Says Rashi, just as everything in the world belonged to adam, adam arishain, the first person at the time when he brought his carbon, the first person in the Torah to bring an offering is Adam, adam arishain. So just as everything in the world belonged to him, when he brought his carbon, and then at the time it was impossible that his carbon had, uh, had been stolen because everything in the world belonged to him anyway. So too, Rashi saying that the Torah says Adam over here to teach us that we too may not bring a carbon or a donation ever that's not 100% ours. You have to give a clean donation. You're not allowed to give tzedakah 
whether it's a donation to a shul, a kailel, a Jewish organization, or anything else, if it's not legit, it has to be glad kosher. The money has to be 100% yours. Just like when Adam brought his uh, offering. Okay. And in truth, you find this idea throughout the Torah. So much good Torah we left behind in the Book of Shemais, but uh, we'll still try to bring up snippets as we can. In the Book of Shemais, at the end of the Book of Ad- uh, um, Exodus, chapter 35, verse 5, it said over there, Take from yourselves a portion for Hashem in reference to the contributions to the Mishkan. It said, take from yourselves a portion for Hashem. Why is the instruction given over there with this unusual form of expression? Take from yourselves. It sounds like take from yourselves means like, you know, take from yourself, what, a finger, an arm, a limb? What do you mean, take from yourselves? Just say, you know, give a portion, or just take a portion, but take from yourselves, what's that about? So the Zayir HaKadosh says, it says, take from yourselves a portion, to remind us that what we give to Hashem and Hashem's causes must truly be ours and never have derived from theft. Take from yourselves, meaning make sure it's really yours. The Zayir says that giving tzedakah in this way is an especially poor move to give a donation of something that really isn't yours and that you have no real right to in the first place. The Zayir says it's a very, very bad idea to do. Because in fact, if you do so, it reminds Hashem Kaviyachal, allegorically speaking, of your initial deed of theft. So not only are you not doing a mitzvah when you're giving a donation or something that's not really yours, you earn the money a little bit dishonestly. Not only that, not only would that be a problem, but you're reminding Hashem as you're, so to speak, as you're giving the donation, you say, yeah, I, rec- I remember this money. I remember that Avera you did. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up again and rubbing it in my face. So, um, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a doubly poor idea and thing to do. I think this is a very, very important idea to key in on. A lot of people have a lot of different kinds of Yetzirahs, different kinds of e- evil inclinations and temptations. And there are some people who, when they're involved in business, they will resort to practices that are not so honest and a little bit sketchy or a lot bit sketchy and dishonest, and sometimes they'll justify their behavior to themselves and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I know it's not right, but you know what? The ends will justify the means. And even if the means aren't so kosher, it's okay. I'm going to end up giving some tzedakah. I'll give it to a worthy cause. I'll help some Torah scholars. Okay, what I'm doing might not be so right. The money may not be totally mined or earned so clean, but it's okay. It'll have a worthy end in the end. And the Torah Hashkafa, the Torah view, is that one needs to stay away from this kind of logic and this kind of warped thinking. And in fact... One of the explanations of the term tzedek tzedek tirdaif in the Torah goes on this idea. The Torah says tzedek tzedek tirdaif, which means righteousness, righteousness you shall pursue. Shall you pursue? Righteousness, righteousness shall you pursue. So why doesn't the Torah just say tzedek tirdaif that you're supposed to pursue tzedek? Why does it say tzedek tzedek? Why does it say it twice? So some of the commentaries answer it's this vart. You want to pursue tzedek, righteousness, justice. That's what you want to pursue. Tzedek, tirdaif. Make sure that the tzedek you're pursuing, make sure it's preceded by one more tzedek. Make sure that the means are kosher and not just the ends. Tzedek is what you have to be busy with on your way to basically being raidef after more tzedek. That's the idea. You want to chase after good causes, good ideas, good values. Make sure the means and the ends are both Kosher. Okay.
Let's go weiter. Chapter 1, verse 2. It says, when a person from among you will bring an offering to Hashem. So the Sfarno notes that the literal translation of this Pasuk is a little bit awkward to say. When a, the Chumash often translates it, the English Chumash, and will tell you when a person from among you will bring an offering to Hashem, etc. The literal translation is, if a person will bring of you an offering to Hashem. That's an awkward mode of speech. Seemingly, it should just have said, if one of you is going to bring a carbon. Instead, the literal translation is, if a person will bring of you an offering to Hashem. What does the Tyra intend by this form of speech? What's that about? So Sfarno notes this. It's a famous question. So it's answered as follows. They say that the real carbon, the real offering, the real sacrifice, the real carbon is always yourself. It's up to a Yid, to a Jew, to twist and contort his or her will when necessary to bring it into conformity with Hashem's. You yourself are the offering. You yourself are the carbon. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to bring you, bring yourself, bring your rotsan, bring your desires into conformity with Hashem. You're the carbon. And that's why it says, if a person will bring of you an offering, because you're the carbon, you're the one. You must train yourself, the Tyra saying, to do what Hashem wants, even when it initially appears to be different than that what you think you want to do. And that pshat also explains what's the meaning of something we're going to find in the book of Ayikra in weeks ahead in chapter 17, verse 5. The end of which, there's a Pusik over there that's literally translated, literally, and, and the Pusik would be translated to say, and they shall slaughter as feast, peace offerings to Hashem, them, Aysam. Them is Aysam. The literal translation of chapter 17, verse 5 is, would say, and they shall shecht and slaughter as feast, peace offerings to Hashem, them, Aysam. It's the same idea. When bringing a carbon, person must know that his heart and willingness to knew the Ratzon Hashem, the desire of Hashem, that's the real carbon. That's why they shall slaughter his feast peace offerings to Hashem. Them. Them. Oisom, because they themselves are the real carbon. The idea over here is that the real litmus test of where a Jew is holding in life could be answered with this question. Ready? Here we go. This is the real, real basic Jewish question. And everything else kind of falls around this is in a commentary on it to some degree. Here's the question. What do you do? When Hashem wants X, but you feel like Y. Okay? Hashem wants you to do X or to not do X. And you want to do Y or you don't want to do Y. Okay? That's it. That's the real litmus test of where you're holding in life. And, you know, you should know the fact that you may generally do mitzvos, the fact you might generally perform the commandments and do what halacha requires of you, might not be all that telling. Maybe... It happens to be that the Abishter's will, what Hashem wants, and your understanding what's right and wrong, align in 99% of cases in life. It could be. could be that what Hashem wants and what you want, it's fine. And they line up. It happens to be that Hashem agrees with me and what He wants is what I want, what I want, He wants. We're on board. It's only when Hashem wants X and you want Y, or He wants Y and you want Z, that you really get to see to what extent your life is really devoted to Hashem's will. That idea over here that the Mepharshim are trying to bring out. Okay, now let's take apart this Pasuk chapter 1 verse 2 a little bit more closely. It says, when a person, we said the person here is an Adam, from among you, from among you is Mikem, 
will bring kiyakriv, an offering to Hashem. The Rechaim HaKadosh expounds this Pasik in a homiletic fashion. Adam can refer to a person who's distinguished, somebody distinguished. Kiyakriv, which means will bring, could mean also that the person should bring closer. Kiyakriv means that he brings closer. Mikem, which means for over here from among you, Mikem from you is referring to a piece of the Jewish people and specifically those Jews who are far from Yiddishkeit. So taken all together, Arachai Makadish is saying that this is something that the leaders and the Chashuvim and Klal Yisrael, the Chashuvah, most distinguished people, should be involved with. Ki, um, when a person, an Adam, from among you, uh, which means to draw close and bring close, Mikem, from among you, meaning a piece of the Jewish people. And Adam, who's Chashiv, Kiyakriv should be bringing close and doing Kiruv from those, Mikem, from amongst you, those people in Klal Yisrael who are further away. That's the idea that Rechaim HaKadosh is saying, something the leaders, the Chashavah people, should be busy, busy with. And in fact, according to him, a person who does so will earn for himself inestimable merit and not be in need of the other karbanas, the other offerings, the other sacrifices, because that noble deed has the status of being, uh, what it says at the end of the Pasuk, an offering to Hashem, a carbon to Hashem. Something to be busy with for every Jew, certainly those who are the Chashuvim. I want to speak about this for a minute, something that's very close to my heart. The Rambam writes in the Sefer HaMitzvah, for example, Mitzvah 205 in the Positive Commandments, the Rambam says that a person should not say, as long as I'm not sinning, as long as I'm not doing averas, as long as I'm not uh, going in the wrong direction, what right do I have to interfere with somebody else? What he does, it's between him and Hashem, it's his business. A lot of people speak this way, even people who are otherwise ostensibly observant. This comes out of their mouth, okay, leave people alone. They'll do what they do, I do what I do. It's not my business, it's not my business at all. And the Rambam writes, and look it up inside, he writes that that attitude, talking this way, thinking this way, it's mamish, the antithesis of Torah. It's the opposite of Torah. We are not, ob not only obligated to ensure that we ourselves aren't transgressing Torah, but also to never neglect a member of our people who might be sinning. Now, obviously, the most we could do is try in a user-friendly way to show the beauty of Yiddishkeit with somebody else. That, that's what we could do. A lot of people don't do Torah, don't know from mitzvahs, don't know from Rabbi Nishalayim, and they're Jewish, and it's through no fault of their own, and, uh, you know, we don't want to tackle them and uh, force them to do anything. And besides, it wouldn't even be so meaningful. But the least we could do is help people make an informed decision. But you can't make an informed decision, I often say, if you're not informed, if you don't have information. I often say also that I find it difficult to overstate the extent to which, as Jews, as Jewish people, that we have an obligation to spread and share Torah with our Jewish brethren. Listen to this well. The altar of Navardic in the Madrigas Adam, towards the end, I believe, he writes that a person who has it in his power to further the cause of Torah must not be lazy and instead give priority to his own interests and relaxation. A lot of people do that. They're lazy, they give priority to what they think is good for them and their own relaxation and repose. The Altar of Navardic says that's not what we should do, especially if you have the power to spread Tyra. Instead, he writes, a Jew 
must summon upon his energies and even be willing to wander from place to place in order to establish what he calls outposts of Torah and Yerushalayim. Maybe you could set up a yeshiva here, a kailal there, a chabura there, a shir here. Maybe you could set things up. If you have it in the power to do so, you're mechuyiv to do so. And then the altar, the altar in the Vardik, in Madrigas Ha'odim, he asks a question rhetorically. He says, who will be held accountable for the lowered state of Torah and the fear of God in our times, if not those people who possess the ability to promulgate it? In other words, who is Hashem going to hold responsible for not spreading Torah the way it could be and should be? And he says the answer is, well, obviously those who have the ability to spread it. And the Alter also writes in very strong language that such people who do have the ability to disseminate Torah, they're not free of their responsibility until they have brought every place under the Degelat Torah, under the banner and flag of Torah and Mitzvahs. In short, what the Altar Navardic is saying is in full agreement with Arachayim. It's the duty of those people who are distinguished by their Tyrant knowledge and appreciation for Yiddishkeit to share it with others. Obviously, uh, the extent to which a person knows, to that extent, the person is responsible to share it with other Jewish people. But the more you know, the more mechuyiv you are to try to help other Yidin get close to our Avinu Sheva Shemayim, our Father in Shemayim, the Untzeratat in Himmel, our Father in Heaven. Many different ways of saying it, the same idea for all. Okay, now I'd like to repeat this Pasuk again and bring out a different point over here. The Pasuk begins in a singular tense. In the singular tense, it says, When a person from among you will bring an offering, an Adam Kiyakriv. Adam Kiyakriv, it's, it's singular tense. But if you look closely, you see that the Pasuk finishes, the verse is going to finish in plural tense. Shall you bring your offering? That's what it says. It's in plural tense. Shall you bring your offering? Shall you is takrivu. Starts out at Adam Kiyakriv, and at the end it's takrivu. The obvious question is why? Why the change of tense in the Pasik from the singular to the plural? And also we have to note that this change in tenses is presented in the context of the karbonais, the offerings, uh, many of which pertain to making an atonement for a sin that a person may have done. So what might that add to our understanding as well, that it's in the context of the of Karbonis, the offerings in the, brought in the temple, many of which have to do with sins, maybe that somehow informs why are we going from singular to plural? What's this about? So the Tam Badas, or Moshe Sternbach Shlita, presents an answer. He writes in his Sefer, you know, that there's a lot of people, they feel, you know what? I could sin, I could go against the Torah, chas v'shalom, but it's nobody's business. You know why? It's not going to have an effect on anybody else. Not gonna, I'm not talking about the person might say, you know, uh, hitting somebody over the head and taking their wallet or, uh, or something else. I'm not going to have an effect on my own thing. Who am I going to hurt if I eat a cheeseburger with meat and milk? Who am I going to hurt if I touch a light switch on Shabbos? I'm not hurting anybody. I could go against a Tyra. I'm not going to have any effect on you. And they say, Ugh, it's my private life. And you know what? I can even have an alternative lifestyle. I can do whatever I want. It's fine. You know why? Because what I do doesn't hurt anybody. Now that may very sound very liberal and very American to you. But you know what? It's a hepach. It's the opposite of Tyra belief. That's not the Jewish belief at all. An individual's averas, a person's individual's, your own individual sins, chas v'shalom, 
and a person's Chilol Hashem and the like, they all hurt Klal Yisrael. They hurt all of the Jewish people. And as much as they spoil the protective shield that envelops Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, and even opens us up, God forbid, to the attacks of the nations of the world. When our Torah and Mitzvah observance is right, it's Ke'ilu, it's as though we have a protective shield over us and guarding us. And if a person would, God forbid, do sins, even if it's an individual one, you poke, you poke holes in that and you open yourself and all the Jewish people up to potential harm. So it says the Tampadas, that's why the Pasuk shifts over here from a singular to a plural and why this shift takes place in the context of the offerings, the Karbanis. Because even when a person doesn't have Eira, even with one person, it's an Odom Kiyakriv, it's, it's shall bring, it's takrivu. Even one person doesn't have era, the harm will ultimately extend to other people. You know, almost everybody who's learned Tyrus heard eventually one time or another what I call the famous boat analogy. What's the boat analogy? It's about a guy who's on a boat in the middle of the water and he decides to take out a drill and he begins drilling under his seat. And the other passengers ask him, hey, what are you doing? And he says, eh, it's nobody's business. I'm just drilling under my seat. And of course, they replied that, what are you talking about? If you persist, you're going to drown us all. We have to know that that's actually not just a very nice little muscle, a cute analogy. It's actually a real piece of Tyra. That actually, that idea, this famous boat analogy, it's a medrash. It's a medrash. And you can find it in Vayikar Parsha Dalit under Oizvov. And that, that famous boat analogy, it's not to stom a little cute story uh, that maybe you heard once upon a time. It's actually a medrash that is taught by a personage none other than the Halegate Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He's the one who taught that lesson. So we would do well to perk up our ears and internalize that lesson. Okay, we've been almost exclusively, actually exclusively only focused on the first chapter of Parshas Vayikra. So let's go to chapter 2. We're almost out of time, so let's skip ahead over there. Chapter 2, verse 11. The Pesach says, You shall not cause to go up in smoke from any leavening or fruit honey as a fire offering to Hashem. What does that mean? This verse is telling us that leavening or fruit honey may not be included in a fire offering to Hashem. It's one of the rules of Karbanis. question is, well, what's wrong with honey? Hashem doesn't like things too sweet. What's the problem here? So the Sefer Achinuch and others equate honey, they equate honey with a life of indulgence and chasing after excessive material pleasures. And this is something for a Yid to avoid. And there's a lot of Torah on that idea that's wrong with what's wrong with honey. And that's the message why it's not brought in the Karbanis. Okay, now if you look at the Torah closely, you see, it's not only here in our parsha in the context of a meal offering, a a carbon mincha, but that we see a need to keep the honey out of the carbonus in the temple service. But you find this in other places as well. It's forbidden to add honey, for example, to the katiris, the incense of the temple. How do I know? It comes from the Yushalmi, the Gemara in the Yushalmi in uh, Meseches Yuma, Perig Dalid, Halacha Hey. And we say this every morning in the Karbanis section of the davening. I hope you say it. Some people don't get there on time to, to do it. But it says in the Karbanis section, that, and I'll say it in English, that Bar Kapara taught further, had a person put a cart of, which is a measure of honey, into it, the incense, no person could have resisted its scent. And then it says, why did they not mix honey into it? Because the Tyra says such and such. And then the, that Chazal 
proceeds to quote the verse in our Parsha as the source. You see, so we see in our Parsha, honey doesn't get added to the offerings. It's not added over there. Sevra Chinuch says it's like with a life of pleasure. It's not over in our Parsha only, but you see this in, uh, in other places as well. You don't even add the honey to the Katairis. And the, and the Gemara over here in the Yushalmi cites this idea. I want to spend, perhaps this will be the last piece of Tyra we'll go through, and let's try to understand this well. Many people have seen this in davening before, in the beginning of the Siddur, and they never noticed it. What's this Yushalmi, this Chazal I cited? It said, Bar Kapara taught further, had one put a quart of honey into it, meaning the incense, no person could have resisted its scent. And, and okay, so that's why you don't put a quart of honey into it, because no person could have resisted its scent. And then the, the Gemara there asks, well, why did they not mix honey into it? Because the Tyra says, blah, 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 and then quotes our passing. Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld asks a good question on this Chazal. If the Tyra is telling us a reason not to add the honey, that's what it said. It said, don't put the honey in. Why? Because no person could have resisted its scent. The Tyra is telling us then a, re- a reason. Then why does the Gemara then proceed to ask, then why did they not mix honey into it and then have to bring the Pasuk in our parsha? We already have a reason. Why do you not do it? Because no person could have resisted its scent. I got it. That could be the end. So then why does the Gemara say again, then why did they not mix honey into it? And then that the, has to bring a Pasuk. We already have a reason. What's this about? Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld has a very, very nice answer. And he says like this, and it's a klal gadol, big rule in the Tyra. He says like this, he says, everything needs a source. Everything in Tyra needs a, a maramakim and a source. It doesn't matter if we think that our logic has devised a good reason to do X, Y, or Z. We have a good reason for X and a good plan for Y and a reason why we should change Z in Judaism. It doesn't matter what your reason is. Even if an idea seems logical to us, Okay, for example, why to omit the honey over here? Omit the honey. Why? Because no person could have resisted its end. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your reason is in your head. We follow what the dictates of the Torah are and not our own logic and certainly when they contradict. And that's part of the, and that's the reason why. So even though the Torah says, and this is what Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld says, even though this Chazal says, well, you shouldn't add the honey. Why? Because no person could have resisted its scent. Okay, but why does it keep going? And how do you know you're not supposed to add honey? It gives us a posik. You know why? Because even if you yourself have devised a good reason for X, Y, and Z, it, many times it may not correspond to what the Torah wants. It may not correspond to what the Torah wants, and you have to have a source. Just because something makes sense to you doesn't mean it's what the Rabbi Nishalaylam wants. A lot of things may make sense to us in our minds, and it could be mamash 180 degrees the opposite of what the Rabbi Nishalaylam wants. Therefore, everything has to have a source. How we treat people, how we deal with people, our hanhaga, our conduct, our behavior, what we do, what we avoid doing, everything has to have a source. And I would conclude for tonight by saying that's part of the reason why you'll find that in, in the shiurim that I'm zaycheh to say over with you on the radio every Wednesday night, certainly in my all my other public shiurim, berabim, when I speak here and there, all the class you'll find on Torah anytime, they're not fluff. The classes are based on sources because a yid cannot move without them. You have to have a maramakim. You have to have a source. You have to have a shtikl taira that instructs you to act in a certain way or not act in a certain way. Behave this way or don't behave a certain way. I could sit here all, uh, all Wednesday night and tell you some, a lot more jokes and stories and everything else. And sometimes stories 
and certainly have their time and their place. I'm not, God forbid, anti-story. But at the end of the day, everything has to have a source. Everything has to have a source. And if you don't know what the source is, then you can't necessarily say, oh, that's the right thing to do. You have to have a source. Medrash, Chazal, uh, something. You need to have a maramaka and you have to have a source. I hope you enjoyed tonight's share very, very much. We're in the Sefer Vayikra now. This has been, and well, it'll still be, but this has been over the last hour on the radio with you, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. If you'd like to get in touch with me in the week ahead, simply send me an email, director at jeln.org. If you'd like a printed version of some of the Torah we covered tonight, I'd be happy to email that to you in time for Shabbos. And until next week, I hope you enjoy. You can find previous week's classes at the JRoot Radio site and certainly on my page at TorahAnytime.com. And I wish you a beautiful rest of the week and a good Shabbos. All the best, cult of, and good night.